What's the mission? It is well recognized in almost all quarters that without a clear and defined mission, it is almost impossible for anyone or any institution to succeed. Thus, before soldiers will go to battle, to go to war, they must know the mission. You'll find that businesses spend much time in crafting a mission statement to guide their company, and they encourage their employees to buy into the mission statement of the company because they realize that without a, a vision, without a mission, they cannot succeed. It is a question, what's the mission? That we ought, as Christians, ought to ask ourselves continually, what's the mission? It is particularly relevant, this question, at this point in history. Because as you well know that we as a nation celebrate this year 150 years. Not very long in terms of nations. There are many older nations. But it is a significant milestone. And at this particular moment, as we heard over the weekend at the conference put on by Toronto Baptist Seminary. The question before us is, on this anniversary year of this nation, the question before us is, as a church, and the Church of Christ in Canada, and we here in Toronto, what's the mission? More particular, we ought to ask ourselves the question, what is my mission? What is my mission? Why am I here? That is always a good question to ask. Why am I here? But I would also suggest to you that the real question is not why am I here, but why am I here now? Why weren't you here in 1917? I don't think anybody was, anyone here was born in 1917. Why were you not born in 1917? Or why will you not be born in 2117? Why are you here in 2017? That's the question I'm going to leave before you to ponder. My hope is that when we conclude that answer will be clear to you. What is the mission? The Lord Jesus answered this question for the church and for the disciples in particular 2,000 years ago. It's found in the text in the book of Acts in chapter 1 and verse 8. That answer to the question, what's the mission, is found right there. Jesus gave it to the disciples. The book of Acts is the second volume of Luke, 
the physician, the doctor. Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke and wrote Acts of the Apostles was a medical doctor. You will see his descriptions of diseases are quite different from the other gospel writers. This then, the book of Acts, is a continuation of the gospel of Luke. And in this early section, verses 1 to 11, the writer presents two main summaries. First of all, in verse 1, there's a summary of the gospel of Luke, where he says, the former account I made, that is, the gospel which I've written to you, Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So what he tells us in the summary statement is that the gospel of Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach. If you want to know what Jesus did and what he said, you must read the Gospel of Luke, the summary statement. The second summary in this passage runs from verse 2 to at least verse 6, where he summarizes the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. That is, that after Jesus rose from the dead, he did not ascend immediately into heaven. But he spent 40 days, over a month, with the disciples. And so Luke tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ continued with the apostles. In verse 3, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So after the Lord was raised from the dead, he spent 40 days with the disciples, teaching them, eating with them, fellowshipping with them, so that it was abundantly clear that he was alive. Now Luke tells us, that on one of these occasions when Jesus was with the disciples, our Lord Jesus promised them that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in verse 5. Or they would be baptized with, he says, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. At that time, the disciples pose a question to Jesus. They ask him, saying, Lord, will you at this time, at this particular moment, restore the kingdom of Israel? Will you free us from the tyranny of Roman rule? Will we be an independent nation as we were once? And Jesus presents and responds to him a very interesting comment to, him, to, to the disciples. He says, essentially, it is not for you to know the hidden things about the thing, hidden things of God. It's very interesting, you know, how as human beings we want to know the things that God does not want to tell us. And the things that he has told us we don't want to know. So they're asking about when God plans to restore Israel. And the Lord Jesus says, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Lord has put in his own authority. It is his own business. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I want to suggest to you that right here in verse 8, we have the answer to the question. What's the mission? 
It is also the answer to our question. Why am I here now? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What I wanted to do is to reflect on verse 8. Now I want us to consider first the principal mandate set before us, that of witness. I want us to also consider the indispensable resource for weakness, and third, the universal scope of weakness. So let's begin then. The principal mandate for weakness. The principal mandate of the church, which is to weakness. Jesus says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Right there, the term weakness sets out the program so we, we would say in probably theological jargon that this is a programmatic statement. It is an essential, pivotal statement because it outlines the mission of the apostles and the mission of the church. And the mission identified by Jesus is simply this, that they were to be witnesses. It is a term, witness, from which we get the English word martyrs. We think of martyrs as those who give their lives in death for their faith in Jesus Christ. And that is a martyr. Scripture uses a term in that sense. But a martyr, a martyria, is to bear witness. Fundamentally, that is the literal meaning of the term. It is to affirm or to give testimony to truth. And this notion of maturia, to witness, has a legal connotation. It's the language of the courtroom. And in a sense, this world is a vast courtroom. And we are witnesses on behalf of Christ to the world. And you shall be witnesses to me. It was important. Later on we see in this chapter. That after Judas. That the church replaced Judas. And we see in verse 15. And following of chapter 1. How after Christ had ascended into heaven. That the church chose Matthias. You know Jesus had 12 immediate disciples, but he had a larger group of disciples who followed him, who journeyed along with him. And from this larger group, they found, in fact, they had two candidates who could replace Judas among the twelve, but they chose by lot, Matthias, who, who, who had been with Jesus, who had witnessed his resurrection from the dead. He was a witness of our Lord, of his life and of his death. It is the Lord's will that the disciples should bear witness. And we see that in the end of Luke, at the end of Luke's gospel, in chapter 24, 46 to 48, Jesus could say to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead 
the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Jesus, therefore, chose the disciples, taught them, and appeared to them after the resurrection that they should bear witness to him. The Apostle Paul, later in the book of Acts, in chapter 22 and in chapter 26, makes clear that the Lord chose him to be also a witness. But we need to understand that the disciples were chosen as witnesses, but in a sense, if you look at this theme broadly, canonically, all of creation is for witness. In Psalm 19, the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiworks. On, on, only smart people, only smart people think that this world came out of nothing. Only the really brilliant people in the world think that this world made itself. The heavens are speaking, and every day the entire creation cries out that there is a God. The heavens are speaking to the majesty and to the glory of God. And those of us who are fools for Christ understand that this world is wonderfully made. It is made by a glorious God, by an all-powerful God. And so we renounce the wisdom of this world and receive the wisdom that comes only from God, true spiritual wisdom. You see, creation bears witness to the power and to the glory of God. Creation cries out every day, there is a God and he is not silent. You and I were created as human beings. In Genesis 1, we were created to be his image bearers, to bear witness to God. We are his representatives. We find in the Old Testament that God carved out from the masses of rebellious and sinful humanity, God carved out a nation, Israel, to be a particular witness to God in a way that creation could not bear witness because they were to bear witness to God as Redeemer, as a God of grace, as a saving God. That's something that creation does not tell us. General revelation does not show us saving grace. So God redeemed Israel from captivity so that they might become a witness to the nations. We see this. We see this in Isaiah chapter 43. Verses 8 to 12, where uh, the writer Isaiah says, Bring out the blind people who have eyes, and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together. Let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses, that they may be justified. Or let them hear them and say, It is truth. And then he says this, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And before me there was no other God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. 
I have declared and said, and I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign gods among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. God saved Israel, that they should go to the nations and to declare that our God is a loving and a saving God, a redeeming God who rescues not from mere physical bondage, but from spiritual bondage. But Israel, by the the very definition, was an unreliable, unfaithful weakness. And so God raised up other weaknesses. Israel was an unreliable, disloyal weakness. Instead of being a light to the nation, they became like the nation. And you have a chapter in the book of Judges, in Judges 19. You have one of the most graphic, shocking instances in the entire Bible of depravity. Because you have a story there. In chapter 18, we were told that in those days, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And chapter 19, you see that. Here you find a Levite whose concubine had run away and he goes back to Bethlehem and he retrieves her. And they're making their way back home and they come to what they think is an Israelite city. It is an Israelite city. It is in Gibeah of Benjamin. And they stop there for the night. And the men of that town among them were homosexuals. And they wanted to sodomize, sexually violate the Levite, this priest of God. And this man does something reprehensible. He pushes out his wife to these men and they violated her all night. And when he woke up in the morning, she was dead. And what does he do? He takes his knife and he cuts her into 12 different parts. And he sends to each tribe a part of her carcass. You see, Judges 19 and Genesis 19 are to be read together. Because in Genesis 19, we have the story of depravity in Sodom. In Judges 19, we have the story of depravity in Israel. And what the writer is saying in Judges 19 is that Israel has become the new Sodom. Sodom is not out there. It is in here. And therefore, in chapter 21, you see that God has to destroy Gibeah and Benjamin because they have become the new Sodom. Unreliable witness to the majesty and the purity and the holiness of God. So God raised up the prophets who were witnesses, but they were waiting for a greater witness, the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why when Jesus began his public ministry, And he comes to Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue and he takes the scroll. And he takes it and begins to read from Isaiah the prophet, the great evangelical prophet. He begins to read from Isaiah 61 verse 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord, he says, is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ has come as the perfect witness. He says, even though I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. He stood before Pilate and he says, for this reason have I come that I might be a witness to the truth. And when you read the last book of the Bible, in Revelation we are told, these things says the Amen and the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus Christ, you see, is the true and faithful witness, the one who gives reliable, perfect testimony to who God is and what God desires. So when the apostles are told that they will be witnesses, you must understand that they now follow in the tradition of Jesus, that they are in the stream of witnesses, and particularly faithful witness, which begins and ends with Jesus Christ. But the question that needs to be also asked, a further question, is what is the content of the witness? They were called, you see in verse 8, when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me. What are they going to witness about? I want to suggest to you that the witness that they were called upon to bear their Christ had to do with three particular things. First, they had to bear witness to his suffering and death for sinners. We saw that. For instance, in Acts 2.23, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. And he says of the Lord Jesus, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. The Lord Jesus chose the disciples that they might witness his death. Luke tells us that the Lord Jesus in chapter 9, 51, set his face to Jerusalem. He had to go to the cross. He had to bear our sins and he died. He was crucified, wretchedly killed on the cross. And what was he doing on the cross? It wasn't just some exhibition of love. No, the cross of Christ was a payment, a full, final, complete payment for sins, for the sins of his people. And with God, there is no double jeopardy. One payment, so that you and I will not have to pay for eternity in hell. You see, we bear witness the disciples were called to witness his death, that payment for sin. But they were called to be witnesses, secondly, to the resurrection. To the resurrection. That is why Jesus appeared to them for 40 days. This is why they were there when Jesus ascended into heaven. He was taken up by a cloud and taken out of their sights. And an angel came back and said, this same Jesus whom you see go up into heaven, will come again in like manner, just as he was transported into heaven at the right hand of God in great style and great glory. So he will come again in majesty, riding on the clouds. They witnessed the resurrection. They witnessed the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And so in Acts chapter 4 we read, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Do you know what happened in the first century? These disciples, these apostles went around saying, 
This Jesus whom you crucified, he's alive. We have seen him. He's risen. And that simple message turned the entire first century Hellenistic Greco-Roman world into revolution. Turned it on his own head. We have seen the Messiah who was crucified come back from the dead. As far as they have known, nobody has ever died and come back to tell the tale. Jesus did and never died again, but ascended into heaven. That's the gospel message. The resurrection of Jesus. You see this message repeated in chapter 2, 24, 31, chapter 3, 15, chapter 10, 40. But there was also a third thing, a third strand of the message that they had to bring to, to bear witness to. They were called to bear witness to the necessity of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In Luke 24, Jesus says, And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. They had, to rip, they had to teach repentance and preach repentance. That is why when Peter comes to the climax of his preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of sins. That you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is part of the weakness that they must bear. That human beings must change. And the language of repentance, whether it is metanoia or epistrepho, these two terms do not simply mean regret. It means a radical change, a 180-degree shift in the way we live. That is a turning away from sin, a turning to God. You must preach repentance, and the good news that they preach is that anyone who comes and believes in the crucified and risen Christ and turns his life over to Christ, that person will receive forgiveness. I want you to know this morning that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ, complete forgiveness for every sin that you've ever committed and will commit if you will trust in Christ. There to be witnesses to a Savior who forgives who washes away our sins. And the sign that we have repented is baptism. Every person who has truly turned from sin must be physically baptized to signify their identification with Christ. We live in a day and age where nobody's in the closet. Everybody's out. But I think that it would be wrong for Christians to go hide. You must declare your faith. Next week... Sunday this time, I hope that you'll have the privilege of witnessing those who will go through baptism here. Well, friends, that's the mission, to be witnesses of a crucified, risen Christ who calls us to repent. But if the mandate is to be a witness, then the indispensable, for res- indispensable resource for witness is also place before us in the text. Notice what the writer says. But when you shall receive power, or or when you shall receive power, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. You notice that there is an order here. That before they were to witness, they had to receive power. And the source of the power that they were going to receive for witness had to come from one place. And one place where? It had to come from the Holy Spirit. He says, 
But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. The writer shows them their mission to be a witness. Now he shows them the resource for that mission. You know, anybody who goes on a task must have equipment. You must have equipment. No, no, no soldier goes to war with a notepad. He's not going to survive. You got to have the equipment to properly exercise and execute the task before you. And the Lord now tells them about this indispensable resource that they have. That is the Holy Spirit. Luke must be seen as the apostle of the Spirit. Some 20 references in the gospel or in his work here in Acts to the Spirit. Luke begins the gospel with the Spirit as the agent of incarnation. When the angel came to Mary and she was perplexed as to how as a virgin she was able to give birth to the Son of God, the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Her conception would be by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit. Our Lord's ministry, according to Luke, was a ministry conducted in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was anointed by God with the Spirit. And Luke says that he went about doing good and healing all who were possessed of the devil, for God was with him. The gift of the Holy Spirit must be seen then as the promise of the Father. Jesus promises them the Spirit. He tells them in verses 4 and 5, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he has said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. God had promised the apostles that he was going to send the Spirit of God upon them. He is the eschatological gift. And they were to wait in Jerusalem. Before they began their ministries, they were to wait. The Spirit then is the promised gift of God. But Jesus is the bestower. The bestower of the Spirit. It is Jesus who gives the Spirit. When he says, for instance, in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, it is he who would give the Spirit. We see that, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, in that marvelous sermon by Peter, where he says, therefore being exalted, that is Christ, to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, that is, this miraculous demonstration of the Spirit's power, that you have seen here. He poured out this which you now see and hear. The Spirit is the promise of the Father, but He is bestowed by the Son. I want to just make one point here. When Jesus tells them that they're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, we must understand that the Holy Spirit must not be seen as an influence or a power. So the Holy Spirit does possess power, but He's not a power. He's a person. This, this, you see, is something that we need to understand. 
Jesus Christ is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, the Spirit. In the fourth century, Arius, the heretic, denied the divinity of Christ, and the Nicene Creed reaffirmed that in 324 A.D. and at Constantinople in 381 A.D. And part of the Nicene Creed reads this. It's a confession of faith, an orthodox confession of faith. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. The Holy Spirit is not an influence. So we do not refer to the Holy Spirit as it, but Him. And that's what you find in Scripture. You see, various examples in, Luke, in Luke's account here in Acts that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about a person. We take, for example, in chapter 5, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, people who, who, who had a piece of property, sold it, and when... They brought the money. They pretended that they'd given everything that they sold the money, the piece of land for, while they were keeping part of it back. And Peter tells them, he says, you have not lied to man, but you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You, you, you know, you, you can't lie to an object. It is precisely because the Spirit is a person and God himself that they were destroyed. We read in chapter 16, for instance, verse 7, Paul says, the Holy Spirit did not permit him to go to Bithynia to witness. That's the action of a person. Or when in Acts 15, the church in Jerusalem was ruling on the issue that were brought before them from the Gentile church, they could respond to them, that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no burden upon you, but what was necessary? It seems good to the Holy Spirit. Well, it's because the Holy Spirit is a person. So the promise of God and that which has been bestowed upon the church is the Spirit. It is He who was given to the church at Pentecost to carry out the mandate of witness. And you need to know that Pentecost was an unusual and unrepeatable event. It was a high point. It, it, it was part of that complex of events involving the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. Just like you cannot repeat the birth of Christ or the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ, you cannot repeat Pentecost because that was the birth of the New Testament church when the Spirit of God came in a manifest and dramatic way and the church of God came to life. Luke tells us here in Acts that the 120 disciples were waiting in Jerusalem in an upper room. And I want to read to you from verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2 of Acts about the coming of the Spirit. When the day of Pentecost had come, this is now 50 days after Passover. Pentecost was celebrated 50 days after the Passover when Jesus died. It says, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. On Pentecost, we see a dramatic movement of the Spirit. It is not that the Holy Spirit was never in the world before. You can only read in the prophetic scriptures, in the Old Testament, in the, in the days of the judges, how the Spirit of God came upon Gideon and came upon the judges. The Old Testament views the Spirit as a spirit of prophecy. It is He who gave prophetic utterances to men in the past. He's always been there. But as salvation history progresses, we come now to the age of the Spirit, which began at Pentecost. That which was lacking in the Old Testament, why Israel was incapable of serving God, is that they lacked the indwelling Spirit. Now we see the Spirit come, and, and in a sense, you know, the, the Spirit comes to the disciples in a two-step process because in John tells us that Jesus breathed on them early and said, receive the Spirit. But they're living in the overlap of the ages between the old and the new covenant. They, you see, they straddle this age of, of newness, and so these events are unusual. But here they are in the upper room, and the Spirit of God comes. And the first thing you know is that there is a sound of a mighty rushing wind, perhaps as voluminous as water pours over Niagara Falls. There comes this massively loud, gigantic sound of the coming of the Spirit. And he comes to the disciples as the resident Spirit who fills the house where they were. He's now going to dwell with them. He is the resident Spirit. And the Bible tells us that he comes upon them as in tongues of fire and he fills them. You need to know that the filling of the Spirit refers to the empowering of the Spirit. It means to be filled for service. And it's different from being full of the Spirit as we find in Acts. Stephen was a man full of the Spirit. It means that his life was under the control of the Spirit. Acts 6 verse 3. Verse 5, chapter 7, 55. Barnabas, chapter 11, 24, was full. But you see that filling refers to the occasional empowerment. Over and over, the apostles were filled with the Spirit. And the sign that they were filled or empowered with the Spirit was that they were able to proclaim and speak in tongues. When the Spirit of God empowered them, He gave them the ability to speak in other languages. And let's be very clear. The speaking in tongues was not speaking gibberish. It was not just making up some funny sounding words. They were speaking, glossolalia refers to living tongues, tongues, languages at that time. That is why people from across the empire, people from Parthia and Medes and the Elamites and those in Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and parts of Libya, and Cyrene, and different parts of the, of, the, of the ancient world. All of them were able to hear these people speaking in their own languages. These are disciples. These guys were fishermen. They didn't go to university, at least most of them. We have to put aside Luke. They weren't very educated men. They didn't 
go to linguistic studies in university. But when the Spirit of God came, they were given the gift of tongues. Can you imagine, you know, you know, wanting to go to Quebec and you want to go preach in French and you, you just get there and you get insight, ability, you just start speaking in French. That's exactly what happened to these guys. When you read in 1 Corinthians 12, you'll realize that not everyone is called to speaking tongues. But God enabled in accordance with his promise in Joel 2, 28 and following, God enabled them to speak in previously unknown tongues to themselves. And everyone could hear the wonderful works of God in their own language. So the gift of tongues then was a gift of real languages for the preaching of the word. And as a result of that, in the early church, and that first sermon, one sermon by Peter, 3,000 people were saved. The church moved instantly from 120 to 3,000 because of the empowerment of the Spirit. So you see, we find the mandate given, which is to bear witness. We find uh, the equipment. The indispensable resource of witness is the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. Very briefly... I want us to look at the universal scope. They were to bear witness, we're told in the text in verse 8, in Judea, in all, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the world. They were to begin at home to bear witness. They were to go to Judea and Samaria, and the disciples began preaching in Jerusalem. This is what you find in the gospel, in, in the book of Acts. But we also see that Philip goes down to Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And the Samaritans are converted. In chapter 9 of Acts, Paul the apostle is converted and then the outreach to the Gentile areas and territories truly began. Cornelius is converted under the preaching of the apostle Peter. But the Gentile outreach really begins in Antioch. That's where the Gentile church is born in chapter 11 of Acts. And then from chapter 15 to 21, Paul begins to take the gospel and his companions into the Roman Empire properly. So the world of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth and these major centers in the Roman world began to hear the gospel. And eventually the apostle Paul is brought as a prisoner to Rome. He has come to the very heart of the empire. And Paul is able to bear witness to the very household of Caesar the emperor. You see, the scope of the mandate is not just our own parochial area, but the world. It is beyond Rome. The end of the world extends beyond the borders of Rome to our people. This is the anniversary year of Canada. 150 years. What gift can we give this nation on this 150th anniversary? I want to suggest that the gift that you have been given in this nation is the gift of the gospel. And our Lord Jesus says to you, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. 
Our Lord Jesus says to us this morning, as I, as the Father has sent me, so have I sent you. And maybe you have come this morning and you've said, God can't use me. I've wasted my life. The majority of my life has been lived in sin. I've been in some dark places. There's, no, there's nothing good that I can do. I want you to know that the Lord is able to take that which is broken and messy and make it good and use it. And you are not beyond the pale of grace. I want you to know that there is better ahead for you. That God is able to take the remainder of your life and make it beautiful and useful for his glory. If you will give yourself to him. Why are you here? And why are you here now? Because God has raised you up for this moment. He has given you unique gifts and abilities. And even though we are not perfect and are riddled with flaws and weaknesses, he is able to weave his gifts and our experiences and is able to sanctify all of who you are. And use you for his glory. It is you that he has raised up now. Not Spurgeon. Not John Chrysostom. The golden mouth preacher. But you. I have called you. I have chosen you. That you should bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain. It means that you and I must be a witness to Christ. But I want to just make one aside here. I would do you an injustice if I didn't tell you, you must distinguish between your weakness and yourself as a witness and the apostles. In one sense, we are not witnesses like the apostles because the earliest apostles were eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus physically. We have not. But we are apostolic witnesses in the sense that we witness and we bear to the world the testimony of the apostles. That our testimony, therefore, must be the same testimony that they gave. And in that sense, we are apostolic witnesses. We are bearing their testimony. We are transmitting the same testimony. My friends, if you are to be a witness, which is your calling, why are you here? You're not here to, to go to university. You're not here to have a profession. You're not here even to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You're not here to be married, even though that is useful and beneficial. But you are here to be a witness to Christ. And for you to be a witness to Christ, you will, be, you will need, first of all, to accept the testimony of God. John says in 1 John 5 verse 9, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and that this life is in his son. 
If you are to be a witness to Christ, you must first of all obey the gospel. You must first of all take the witness of God about his son as true. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that eternal life is found in him and in him alone. You must place your entire faith in Christ. You must say, God, I believe you are true and all men are liar. I embrace Christ. I receive him. I take him to be my Lord. And in him I have life. And by doing that, by taking the testimony of Christ, given in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you trust in him, repent of your sins. Then you can become a witness. You must be a witness in your by your lips. You must verbally tell men about Christ, that he died, and that he is living, he rose from the dead. You must call them to repentance and faith. You must bear witness by your lips. You mustn't be silent. You must ask God for opportunities, and you must take them to tell the world about You must be a witness by your life. You have to have these two together. You can't on one hand say that the Lord Jesus Christ is king of your life where, and then everything around you contradicts it. Your life must support your witness. You must proclaim to your family and to your community and to the world about Jesus. Our Lord in Matthew 5 says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. We are told that we must adorn the gospel. We must make the gospel attractive by the way we live. Paul tells the believers in Philippi that they are to walk worthy of the gospel. We are, if we are to be witnesses of Christ, we must not merely tell, but we must show. We must show the world what it is to be truly loving and truly humble and truly caring. We must show the world what it means to be fully devoted to God like Jesus was. We must, in fact, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you're going to be a witness, you must live in your family before your parents and before your siblings. You must live in the world like one who truly knows Christ. Because it is only as you wed your verbal witness and your practical life of godliness and soberness and devotion that you can bear witness. You must not join the world in its sins. You must step back and separate and be different because you have been saved. And the reason you do it are for two main purposes. First, because of love for Christ. You must not be ashamed of him because he's not ashamed to own you as his own. He has prepared for you a heavenly city. He loves you with an everlasting love. He has delivered you. You ought to tell the world that (laughs) when I was hungry, I found bread. I found the bread of life, who is Christ. And you ought to call men to come and to taste and to eat of Christ, to receive life. You ought to tell men because you love Jesus Christ. You ought to tell men because you are concerned for the glory of God. The purpose of witness is to bring glory to God. I don't know what will happen in your career. 
I don't know if you will succeed in business. But I know one thing. That if you are to do what the Lord requires. That if you are to measure success by conformity to Christ. If you do the will of God for your life. Which is to live for him and to bear witness in this world. Regardless of whether you succeed in business or in any other area. You may be a failure to the world but you will be a success to God. And the only success that really matters is a success that God identifies and approves of. You must live for Christ. Is there anyone this morning who would say, Lord, by grace I'll be a witness? I trust it would be you and it would be me. Know that you have all resources to do it. For this is not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Before Elijah was taken up into heaven, He said to Elijah, ask what you want. What can I give you? And Elisha says to Elijah, give me a double portion of your spirit. You and I must go to God in prayer and say, God, give us, give me a double portion of your spirit. That I may be a bold and fearless and faithful witness in my workplace in my associations of the gym, in all of my interface with the world, make me a witness. And never doubt, because the Lord has made it clear that his church will never fail, that no power, the gates of Hades will never prevail, that the cause of Christ will triumph. You ought to bear witness. I want to close in the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who One of the greatest Baptist preachers of all times, 1834 to 1892, Spurgeon says, I think that no true-hearted Christian will ever give up any enterprise which God has laid upon him because of fears for its ultimate success. Difficult, says Napoleon, is not a French word. Doubtful is not a Christian word. We are sure to succeed. The gospel must conquer. It is possible for heaven and earth to pass away, but it is not possible for God's word to fail. And therefore, it is utterly impossible that any nation or kindred or tongue should to the end withstand the attacks of love and the invasions of the armies of Jesus Christ the King. Bear witness in the knowledge that Christ and his kingdom will succeed. Let's pray. Our Father, we give ourselves to you this morning, this afternoon, to be your witnesses. We pray then take our lives. We devote ourselves to your service. Use us then, we pray, in all that we say and do that men may hear of Christ from us and see him, that we are surrendered and submitted to him. And for those who do not know you, we pray that they may give themselves, all of themselves, to you. And for us who are your own, we pray, encourage your people to continue to be a witness in a dark world. We ask for Jesus Christ, for his sake. Amen.